0: Hello and welcome to our second ever podcast covering our scientific event series here at the Zoological Society of London. I'm Moni bohm I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Society's Institute of Zoology. And in this podcast, we will be exploring whether or not there is a sustainable approach to fishing in the Arctic. Why the Arctic? Well, with climate change causing sea ice to retreat, large areas of the Arctic, which were previously inaccessible to any kind of fishing or any other human impact for that matter, are opening up to potential exploitation. So how do we best manage these areas? Should we set them aside as protected areas? Should we allow sustainable fishing? And if so, is there in fact a sustainable approach that would work? Now, I'm not a marine biologist. In fact, my knowledge on the marine environment and fisheries doesn't extend much further than the short walk to my local chippy. However, I like to eat my fish in the knowledge that I don't cause excessive harm to fish stocks and the wider environment. So to help me figure things out, I have five guests with me and we'll be discussing the emotive subject of exploiting marine resources in general and the case of Arctic fishing in particular. Right, now with me is Rod Capel, who is director at Poseidon, which is a fisheries consultancy working with governments and the seafood industry. Rod, I have very little knowledge generally of where my fish comes from, and even fewer knowledge on how important fisheries may be for national economies. Is it right that in the UK, much of our Arctic cod fish comes from Greenland, for example?
1: Well, in the UK, a lot of the fish, um, particularly the white fish, because British consumers love their fish and chips still, and they love the white fish of cod, haddock and whiting. And a lot of that actually comes from the Barents Sea, some Greenland boats do fish in the Barents Sea under licence, but basically the UK and Europe as a whole imports an awful lot of their fish that, uh, that people eat from other countries. So while it's not that important to the UK economy, despite the discussions in uh, the Brexit debate about fishing, it is important to many other economies. For Greenland, in fact, fishing and fisheries... Is critical to the economy. Around 7% of Greenland's GDP is down to fishing, and that's actually grown over recent years up from 5% five or six years ago, because other sectors have uh, declined, but fishing is an indigenous industry that's kept going. By comparison, the UK GDP contribution from fishing is about five percent So you could argue that fishing is 140 times more important to the Greenland economy than the UK economy.
0: Um, So given Greenland's dependence then on fisheries, how can we implement sustainable fisheries while protecting this previously unexploited region of the Arctic?
1: Well, some of the work I've been doing um, has been on Marine Stewardship Council certification and working with a group called Sustainable Fisheries Greenland And they're a group of industry and fishermen's associations in Greenland that have been looking to get their fisheries assessed against the MSC standard. So they are very aware of the need to protect their resource because, as I said, economically they're so dependent on it. They export a lot of it to the EU market, which has a growing interest in the sustainability of uh, seafood as well. So they undertook five or six years ago to encourage their fisheries through this process. And through that, they have to prove their sustainable credentials and also look to apply improvements that we identify in their management.
0: Can fishing ever be truly sustainable, or are we just kidding ourselves?
1: Well, I strongly feel that fisheries can be sustainable if you consider the three pillars of sustainability being the environment, the economy, and society. Certainly in Greenland, it's all those three pillars that are essential, and they recognize the need to protect their environment in order for the fish resources to keep producing and them to be able to keep harvesting. So there's a real recognition that fisheries needs to be sustainable. Otherwise, it's a very short-term view. These fishing operators are going to go out of business.
0: How would you suggest we best manage Arctic waters in a nutshell?
1: I feel that it has to be a combination of measures because what is clear from Arctic countries and Arctic communities is that they require the flexibility to deal with whatever nature throws at them. There will be new opportunities with more temporal species moving further north, and there will be a shift in Arctic fisheries further north as well. We're already seeing that. So there needs to be a level of protection, but that needs to be on a sort of pragmatic and reasonably flexible basis I feel, otherwise fishing uh, communities that are so dependent on it will really struggle to survive.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Rod. So with me now is Rowan Curry, who is a Fisheries Fishery Standards Director of the Marine Stewardship Council. Um so Rowan, can you explain for lay people like me how does the fishery certification process work under the Marine Stewardship Council?
2: The certification process for the Marine Stewardship Council relies on third parties, um, conformity assessment bodies, to assess individual fisheries. Each fishery that comes into the program, they have a site visit to go out and actually get collect information and they conduct scoring of the fishery against three principles. Stock status, environmental effects and the management system. Those three broad areas are assessed. And if the fisheries pass, then they are able to be certified. Frequently you obtain conditions. And those are issues that have to be addressed by the fishery over the course of their certificate. And the certificates last for five years. So through that process, you assess a fishery to ensure it's sustainable but you also provide and identify areas where they need to improve and you incentivize the improvement so that they can maintain that certificate in the long term
0: cool so they do get updated regularly so as a consumer just because something was certified at some point it's worthwhile keeping up to date with um, what's good fish and what isn't necessarily good fish Excellent. So you were previously involved in the establishment of the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area, the world's largest marine reserve uh, just off Antarctica. Do you think the lessons learned during the Ross Sea designation process can also be applied to the other side of the planet, to the
2: Arctic? I was the the New Zealand science advisor, and as part of that process, what I got to see unfold was how a strong science-based process can influence a very complex geopolitical group to ensure that there was a a strong rationale for establishing a marine protected area and then that that science could be used directly as an input for them making their final decisions on the establishment of it. And the the marine protected area was most recently agreed in, in October. It'll come into force next year. And for me, I guess the big parallel to the Arctic is... It's it's similar environments, they're they're complex environments biophysically, they're complex environments geopolitically and in these environments it's possible to have a science-based process result in good conservation outcomes but at the same time allows parallel development of sustainable fishing. So the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area will enable fisheries to continue in adjacent areas, And those fisheries are MSC certified. They've been through this established process. So in this case, in my opinion, it's possible to have robust marine protection and sustainable fishing coexisting at the poles.
0: So economics has never been my strong subject, but um, aren't there very different economies at play in the two regions, in the Ross Sea region and in the Arctic, uh, specifically when it comes to fisheries? And could this mean that the Ross Sea approach doesn't entirely work in the arctic
2: so the the economics of the fisheries operating in the antarctic and the arctic are a little different one important difference is the scale of the fisheries that are operating there the toothfish fishery that operates in the ross sea catches of the order of about 3,000 tons per Mm -hmm. annum there are multi tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of tonne fisheries operating in the arctic or adjacent areas so you are talking larger volume fisheries I guess the the key message, though, is where there is possibility of spatially separating areas where there's likely to be concerning ecosystem impacts from the core areas of fishery activity, even for larger fisheries, it's still possible to segregate those two activities and say that you want to set aside an area for protection, but you can still have a well-managed sustainable fishery in other areas. The key is to have adequate science to designate it appropriately.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. Right, so next we have um, Will McCullum with us, who has the absolute amazing job title of Head of Oceans at Greenpeace. Um, Now, Greenpeace were recently involved in a campaign to ban bottom trawling in areas of the Barents Sea, which had not previously been um, exploited. Um, So, Will, can you give us a bit of background on your campaign, and do you think the lessons learned from the campaign could be expanded further across the Arctic region?
3: Um, yeah. So for about the last five years or so, uh, Greenpeace has had as one of its flagship campaigns a campaign called Save the Arctic, which has spanned uh, industrial fishing, it's spanned indigenous rights, and uh, also probably most famously um, the search for oil in the Arctic. Uh, and for the last couple of years, we've really we've really been looking at the Barents Sea and the and the fishing operations going on up there over the last. 20 years, the fishing season in the Barents Sea has expanded by about 20 weeks because of ice melt resulting from changes in the climate. Uh, So what we're seeing at the moment is a rapid expansion of potential waters to fish in. And we're seeing the industry just slowly moving further and further north each year. So our campaign was really to try and persuade the industry and try and persuade uh, consumers that we shouldn't automatically assume that these waters will be available to fish. And and actually, we have a great opportunity here to protect these waters, uh, which have amazing wildlife on the seabed. They're largely unexplored because this is is just completely uncharted territory.
0: So as a a consumer myself, um, how much of the success of this campaign was down to mobilizing people like me who quite like to eat
3: fish? A huge amount of it. The consumer pressure is always what Greenpeace depends on in a way and it's what retailers and supermarkets are most scared of. So it's um, it's a vital part of Greenpeace campaigns and it's consumer pressure that, that uh, allows us to pull that lever with, with large companies and make sure that they listen to us and that we can get them round a the table to have these important discussions. There's also always the argument with any fisheries that greater protection can often be a win-win for fishermen. If you, if you protect areas, you see huge increases in fish stocks, or you can see uh, you see greater biodiversity. And the, the economic benefits of marine protection are, is, is a well-established fact.
0: So if you had the final say, um, how would you suggest we best manage um, Arctic waters that have not been previously exploited?
3: The, the Arctic is melting at an unprecedented rate, and temperatures are soaring. Each year they're getting hotter and hotter. It's new territory, and we're, we're unsure where it's going. At the same time, we have the Aichi targets, which say that we should be protecting 10% of the world's oceans by 2020, and there are many within the scientific community who say that actually we need to be protecting at least 30% of the world's oceans. If we want to get there, we're going to have to protect a lot more, a lot quicker than we're currently doing. Um, So it would be, in a way, a beautiful irony for these waters, which are appearing as a result of ice melt from climate change, could be protected in part as a way of sequestering carbon, but also to protect biodiversity that we don't know that much about. So in answer to the question, how would I best manage the Arctic waters, I'd say let's start with assuming maximum protection where possible.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. So joining me now is Chris Jessen. Now Chris is a research fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. He started his career with a degree in pure maths, but we won't hold that against him. Um, He is now a marine scientist, focusing in particular on assessing the impact of trawling on seabed fauna in Greenland waters. Right. So, Chris, as you know, I do my science primarily sat at a computer in a cosy office, um, as far removed from the challenges of fieldwork as is feasibly possible. How do you even go about studying the impact of something like bottom trawling? I would assume it's very difficult to set up experiments in a seabed environment.
4: Well, I also spend most of my time (laughs) sitting in front of a computer, but um, occasionally I do get to go out to some really cool places inside the Arctic Circle, Really what we do is we take observations of what's there. It's very difficult to set up uh, what we might call a gold standard experiment where we are examining trawled and untrawled areas because, frankly, there aren't very many untrawled areas out there. We estimate that in the West Greenland area where the shrimp trawl fishery operates, about 85% of available habitat has been trawled based on the limited information we have. The areas that haven't been trawled tend to be very odd areas, untrawlable areas and not suitable for comparison. So um, what we can do is we can use our camera to take pictures of the seabed. We then sit at our computers and Um, count the organisms that we see and then try to do comparisons across heavily trawled areas and lightly trawled areas and look at relationships between the areas and what we typically find is some pattern of diversity where higher trawled areas tend to have lower diversity and the less trawled areas have higher diversity.
0: So given all this do you think that Science is limited in what it can actually achieve to inform fisheries.
4: I still think there's lots of useful information that we can provide. We can't necessarily provide definitive before and after stories of, of what's happened, but what we can do is we can identify vulnerable or potentially vulnerable species and habitats, and we can provide this information to fisheries managers so that they can make more informed decisions about protection measures based on the information we have about vulnerabilities.
0: Now, Chris, we have heard a lot already about protection versus sustainable management of Arctic waters. Now, as somebody who has actually studied impacts of trawling on our seabeds, do you think bottom trawling can ever be truly sustainable?
4: That's a tricky one because there's been a lot of criticism precisely about this whether any bottom trawl fishery should be certified as sustainable lots of seabed have been trawled extensively for a very long time and it's debatable whether those intensively trawled areas will ever recover some of our work has been to look at seabed in greenland over a 30-year period and we can detect no deterioration in these seabed habitats. So in in terms of this particular area with this particular fishery, it seems that there's no ongoing deterioration of habitat and um, that is a measure of sustainability. But from my perspective, there's just so much fundamental biology that we don't know. I think there's just a really large need for basic questions of what lives where in arctic waters so at the moment it's really basics of what's actually out there
5: cool
0: excellent thank you very much right so with me now is Kirsty kemp who is an independent research fellow at our institute of zoology and a benthic ecologist which means she likes to look at bottoms Sea bottoms, to be precise. Uh, Kirsty does all sorts of cool things with underwater cameras and remotely operated underwater vehicles, uh, investigating disturbance of fishing on the seafloor. So, Kirsty, um, does it seem that ultimately retreating sea ice in the Arctic has opened, sometimes quite literally, a huge can of worms? How can we consolidate sustainable fisheries um, with the need to conserve this previously relatively untouched region of the planet?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's actually the crux of what we've been discussing this evening. It's not feasible to say that one approach is going to cure all ills. Some regions are certainly eligible, a strong argument could be made for a complete protected zone, and the Arctic, certainly the central high Arctic, might be a candidate for that. Other areas where resource extraction from the Arctic is a fundamental part of the economy, for example, West Greenland, the approach needs to be taken in a more management context. Um, fisheries need to be managed and repeatedly assessed to check whether the, that management is in fact sustainable. It wouldn't be feasible to close off that area to fishing altogether. So I think in addressing that problem, we really need to consider all the tools at our disposal
0: Um, We heard a lot about this already today, but a lot of decision-making in fisheries management comes down to consumer pressure. How can consumers best stay on top of what is good and what is not in fisheries?
5: Yeah, that's a tricky one. The assessment of fisheries is a continuous process. When a fishery enters, for example, into the marine stewardship certification scheme, they go through that process in four or five or six years. And so, I would argue that a fishery that has entered into this process is already being highly scrutinised and consequently are a- are allowed for that period to carry the certification label. There's debate about this, but I would argue that that certification label is valid and a consumer can trust it. But it's also changing. You can't assume that just because one stock was fine last Christmas, that it's going to be totally fine this Christmas. So if you were
0: Arctic president and had the final say, how would you suggest we best manage Arctic waters in a nutshell?
5: In a nutshell. We have to address this issue through a myriad of approaches. There are regions which could be closed off that have not yet been fished, And are becoming accessible to resource extraction, not just fishing, but tourism and fossil fuel extraction. And these these are becoming accessible due to the retreat of the sea ice. And there's a very strong argument that we should employ a precautionary principle straight off the bat, close those areas and preserve them as they are. However, this isn't this isn't feasible or reasonable in other areas where fisheries can contribute up to 70 percent of a of a national economy, such as in Greenland. And those fisheries, the the efforts of the fisheries themselves to improve their practice and to um, have a sustainable pro- product has to be respected, and they have to be allowed to go through that process.
0: Thanks, Kirsty, and thanks to all of our guests for a great insight into the complexity of present-day conservation. Opening up of Arctic fisheries comes with economic possibilities for regions highly dependent on marine resources, but also with the threat of heavy human impact on one of our last truly wild and relatively untouched environments. From what we heard today, the answer probably lies in a balance between areas closed off to fisheries and areas of sustainable management. So a bit of a tightrope walk. Um, To guide us along, we need dedicated researchers like Kirsty and Chris and the funds for them to do their work to provide the science that measures the impacts we may be having on the Arctic seas. As for this particular consumer, well, I will be heading back to my cozy desk and check out the latest Good Fish Guide – so thanks for listening to our second ever podcast. I know that one swallow doesn't make a summer. I am a zoologist after all, but I reckon two podcasts pretty much make a series. So listen out for more of our wild science podcasts in future. Bye!